Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be only acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Please be seated. I found this week that my mind kept wandering to the second coming. I have a friend who works with those who are in the worst of estates, primarily in Africa, but also those victims of violence in America. And he often talks of how he longs for Christ's return. Often I find it hard to sympathize with these thoughts, for I have goals and hopes and dreams after all, and I want them to come true. But something about this week made the whole perspective shift in my mind. I think it was the juxtaposition between the glorious evening we had Wednesday, filled with beautiful worship, dispelling out of the story of our salvation in the lessons and carols, the wonderful fellowship we had afterwards, filled with laughter, games, and merriment. Then, in the following day, the realities of the world seemed so heavy. I think we tend to cling too tightly to this world. In our social media age, many younger people live with a symptom that we often call the fear of missing out, or if you're cooler than me, FOMO. This fear is that if we don't experience everything there is to experience or that our friends are experiencing, then we somehow miss out. We somehow experience less of life. I have heard that this fear has even led to high levels of anxiety with those who overuse social media. In our age, we want to experience all that life has to offer. We want it cheaply, we want it easily, and we want it now. But this life is only a taste of eternity. If we choose to live a life of sin, our eternity will be filled with sin, filled with our self-centeredness and our depravity. If we live a life for Christ, we will experience Christ's glory. We will see the recreation and how it was meant to be before the fall. My thoughts this week followed a pattern roughly like this, and I hope that I can do them justice and make them make sense. After our Christmas party, I went home and I felt rich beyond my wildest imagination. My heart was glad how full the stepping stone box was with slippers, for how well lessons and carols seemed to go, for the laughter and love we shared this past Wednesday night. And then reality struck on Thursday as I saw sickness and sin up close and personal in people who I love deeply. And then Friday, I went for a walk in our beautiful forest, and I saw, looked over the green valley of our city and was filled yet again with that awe. And on Thursday and Friday, my mind went here. My longing for the second coming became more and more magnified. Our joy, our fellowship in eternity will be without any sin. 
Our worship will never be tiring and always life-giving. And even nature will be redeemed. And the beauty that we experience now, when we look out on our hikes and in the woods or wherever, will be magnified. For St. Paul writes that even creation groans for the second coming of Christ. Even creation has been affected by the fall. Can you imagine the beauty of the new creation? If this world is corrupted by sin, what must it look like then? Can you imagine life without our bodies failing? Life without the sin that separates us from each other and from God? Friends, let us not cling too tightly to this world and to this age. For in, this age, for in the age to come, pain and tears and sorrow will be wiped away. And what has this to do with John the Baptist? Advent is a season of preparing. We are preparing to celebrate the incarnation this coming Wednesday. We are remembering continually the renewing of the coming of Christ into our lives. And we are preparing for Christ's return. In this passage we read this morning, we read of that Baptist preparing the way for Christ. The reality is, John is preparing us are the way for us as well. For in many ways, the current cultural milieu of America reflects that of Christ's time. We are becoming more secular, more pluralistic, and often cultural, moralistic, and relativistic religion is more prevalent than a heartfelt religion of conversion and circumcised hearts. And yet in this, we are called to be a people whose lives are being changed by knowing Christ. As we open this passage, we find this long scheme of dating. The initial statement in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar was a fairly common way to date manuscripts. Much like we might write in late May in 2018 was when I first laid eyes upon her. It provided the reader with an explicit sense of when this was taking place. The remaining points of reference, include two high, including two high priests, were at, were at the time and the first glance seem a bit extraneous. These probably, I think, serve two purposes. First, it further backs up St. Luke's desire to make it imminently clear this really happened. And this is, this is when it was. But it also provided the early reader with a picture of the political atmosphere of the day. We do this as well. We say, remember when so-and-so was the presiding bishop or when such-and-such -such was the president? And for most of us, the two people provided provide a clear understanding of what was going on in that time. For the modern reader, this is a bit lost, but we do know a little of Herod, whose family was known for lavish and decadent lifestyles, and of Pontius Pilate, who tended to overreact to political uprisings and would eventually be removed from his office because of a massacre he'd later commit. We read of the high priest's actions that were mentioned in the judgment of Christ. 
So we understand how fragile the political and religious ecosystem of that point is. And it is into that scene that this man comes proclaiming the baptism of repentance. John is prompted by the coming of the word of God to him. Here we want to not confuse this by John the evangelist who calls Jesus the Logos or the word, but rather the Baptist was most likely prompted by the Holy Spirit or the coming of an angel, and therefore he knew it was time to start his outward ministry. We also want to be careful here not to expect that the Lord will explicitly tell us what to do. It would be nice if we always heard an audible voice that said, do this or don't do that. But the most surefire will, way to know the will of God is to be enriched constantly in God's word, to surround yourself with Christian brothers and sisters, to develop a good and sound conscience, and to live a life that is biblically pleasing to God. And out of that, we can proceed with confidence that God will prevent or open doors which he desires for us to go through or not to go through. We do not need to be constantly concerned that we audibly hear a word from God, but rather every time we crack the Bible, we read his very word and that we may be filled and encouraged in this race. For John, something prompted him and we, he knew it was time to start preaching the baptism of repentance. The mission was twofold. The Semitic understanding of repentance was a complete turning away from one's sinful actions, a complete turning away from one's sins, a life in Christ, a life emboldened by the Holy Spirit, demands and gives us the opportunity and the ability to turn away from sin. Yes, some sins may still be a struggle. Some may find themselves wrapped deeply around our hearts and hard to shake off. But this is why we're given Christian fellowship, why we're given pastors and priests and friends to walk with us through the darkness, that we may be freed from those sins that haunt us. Baptism for John is a ceremonial washing, clean. It is a making it is marking this turning away from the sins of the world. For the Christian, it marks the entrance into God's covenant community. It marks the beginning of that journey of discipleship. We notice that when the Great Commission is given, we are called to baptize and make disciples. Our process of discipleship takes time. But when someone enters into the community, we do not expect perfection for the new covenant, we expect a desire to grow in Christ. And for the child, we expect parents who will raise them to know the love of Christ. Baptism marks the beginning of a life of repentance, a continual renewing of the soul and the mind by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is the outward washing which signifies the promise of all present that we will seek to glorify God in all we do, and that we will flee from our sins and flee to God. This mission of John is the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophet 
that we read from the prophet Isaiah. John is the voice crying in the wilderness. I remember last spring driving through the Judean wilderness. Having now lived in an arid place for a little over two years, having seen that wilderness there and here, the biblical idea of wilderness takes on a greater significance. Maine, as you know, is not that arid. There are plenty of wild areas, but in Maine's wilderness, there are streams and trees and lots of cute wild animals. The Palestinian wilderness that Jordan River cuts through is much more like the Arizona desert than the forests of Maine. And I remember thinking as we drove, this reminds me of Arizona, only it's whiter. As we imagine John's ministry, we should think of the desert that lies between here and California that I suspect many of us have driven. And you can have a pretty good idea of what it looked like. And then the lazy river Jordan runs through it. Though it might be spiritually mighty, as some suggest, it is not the roaring waters of the mountain rivers that we might think of when we think of a mighty river, but rather it flows through the landscape rather peacefully from the Sea of Galilee until it empties into the Dead Sea. The Judean wilderness has little to offer the world, and as such, it seemed like a reasonable place to be a favorite of the prophet. For there is little to distract him, and there is little to draw those who are consumed with worldliness. Repentance, John preached, wasn't a repentance of works righteousness, but to prepare for the coming of Christ to prepare for the incarnation, to prepare for the great work that God was already doing in the world and in the lives who would all come to know Christ. And here we must yet again be careful. It would be easy to make Advent a season of works righteousness. It would be easy to think, well, I'm going to make myself worthy of Christ. I, by my own hand, and I am going to put off all this sin and then be consumed with pride and think this is I who has done it all. Rather, in Advent and throughout the year, it is the Holy Spirit that tends to the soil of my heart. It is the Holy Spirit that plants the seeds of faith into my heart. It is him who waters, who nurtures the seedling into a plant until it bears fruit, and it is the Spirit that carries the seeds in those fruit into others' hearts. Remember St. Paul talking about this? The one who plants and the one who tends and so forth? He does not want us, those who tell us about the faith, who disciple us to become our source of hope, but to recognize that it is ultimately God who is responsible for our faith and our growth. A life of faith comes not from our works, but from submission to Christ and allowing him to grow and nurture us. And so the season of Advent is not about our works, but about preparing and being prepared by the Holy Spirit. And even creation will testify to Christ. Creation testified in, testifies in two ways. First, 
Christ had authority over the weather. We see him calming storms. And in this, we see a symbol, a sign that he is the incarnate Lord. But we also know in the new creation that all that is broken and crooked in creation because of the fall will be made whole and be made right. This probably doesn't mean that your favorite childhood pet will be waiting for you in heaven. I'm sorry to break that to you. But it does mean that there will probably be dogs in new creation who will be the perfect and untarnished form of dogs. It does mean that every aspect of creation will be perfectly restored to how it was before the fall. And that will be an amazing and beautiful day. I'm not entirely sure what that means for mosquitoes, but I think they will be there and less pesky. But what does this mean that all flesh shall see God? Christ opened the door that every person can come to know God. Open the door that regardless of race, ethnicity, background, regardless of whatever socioeconomic factors they face, of their upbringing, through Christ can know and see God and are being prepared through Christ for fellowship with God. But it is also prophetic for the end of time. For St. John the Evangelist tells us, on the last day that every knee shall bow and confess that Christ is Lord. John the Baptist's message stings our modern ears. But sometimes we must be stung to be awakened out of our stupor. John calls those who are listening a brood of vipers. Imagine if I were to start my sermon that way. I suspect that I would get some sort of reaction and it probably wouldn't be a very good one. For John is calling his listeners evil and connecting them with a creature that is routinely portrayed in the Old Testament as being a schemer who seeks to destruct others. Jonathan Edwards, whose theological prose are matched by few others, is largely only remembered for his sinners in the sinners in the hands of an angry God sermon, which starts out talking about God's vengeance. But in his context, it seemed that there were some pretty serious sin, issues of sin in his congregation that needed to be addressed and addressed firmly. And his sermon wasn't out of line. But hearing of God's wrath in our modern context can be very hard. And so we must pause and ask ourselves, are our hearts being conformed with God's heart? Or is this all a show? Are we a brood of vipers more concerned with worldly goods? Or are we desiring God in all we do? Our life in Christ calls us to leave behind worldly goals and to seek to build the kingdom of heaven, seeks those fruit of the Spirit. And so we flee from God's wrath and flee from those things that incite God's anger, and flee to his grace and mercy which we find in Christ. The wrath of God is a tough thing, I think, to think about. But over the last year, the more I've thought about it, it has become clearer and clearer to me that we cannot have a loving God 
without God's wrath. We cannot have a God who truly cares for his creation, who does not get angered by sin. We cannot have a holy God who is perfect, whose truest form of, who is the truest form of love, who is good in every way imaginable, who does not condemn the actions that are the antithesis of love, of goodness, and of perfection. No, God must become angry with sin, and God must condemn it if he truly loves us, for sin is the opposite of life. And this is the good news. God sent forth a propitiation for our sin. That is to say that God sent forth one who has taken all our sins upon himself in order that we do not bear the intolerable burden of them. We do not bear the death that comes with it. In order that we do not bear the wrath that is rightfully ours. It is in Christ that we find freedom. And so we flee from our sins and flee from God's wrath. We flee into Christ, flee into God's love, and that mercy that we find in Christ and Christ alone. It is when we are in Christ and given the Holy Spirit that we are given the ability to bear fruit that is in keeping with repentance. And what is this fruit? Love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It might do us well, therefore, to memorize the end of Galatians 5, so we have in our mind a continual reminder of what God is doing for us in the Spirit. We know that we are still fallen. We know that we still sin, that we fail at times to produce the fruits, these fruits. But the fruit doesn't come from our work, but learning continually to reside in the Spirit. It is under his sanctification that we start to love better, to rejoice in all things more, to be more patient in adversity, to be kinder to our friends and even those who hate us, to love goodness, to do good, to be faithful to Christ, to be gentle and to have self-control. John's warning to not say for ourselves that we have a father in Abraham stands true for us today as well. Though I doubt that many of us are trusting in that specific heritage, we do have a propensity to trust in the things of the world, to say that these things set us apart. And so another good soul-searching question is, are we trusting in anything other than Christ? Are you a cradle Episcopalian, therefore regard set aside regardless of your actions? Are you an amazing patriot, and therefore set apart? Are you a Democrat or Republican, therefore above reproach? Are you well-educated? Are you hardworking? There is a goodness in being the child of Abraham. They were God's chosen people. There's a goodness for being raised in the church and faithfully attending throughout your life. What an amazing testimony to God's faithfulness. There is a goodness in loving our country, we were planted here, after all, by God himself. 
There is a goodness in having political convictions. It shows we care. There's a goodness in being educated. It can renew our mind and be a blessing to so many others. There is a goodness in being hardworking. These are all good and beautiful things, but they do not save, and we cannot trust in them for our salvation. No, we trust the Lord. When judgment day comes, surely our actions will be matter, but we will find ourselves in the arms of Christ, not because we're Episcopalian or Anglican or Baptist or Patriots or Democrats or Republicans or hold several degrees or no degrees at all. We will find ourselves in the arms of Christ because he loved us, because he died for us and he rose again. We will find ourselves in the arms of Christ because we trust him and him alone, not in any of our own works. John the Baptist says that God can make for himself children of stones. Of course, he meant the stones that littered the Judean wilderness, but God raises the spiritually dead to life. And in this, we are called to rejoice, for we were once spiritually dead, but now we are alive in Christ. We were once separated from God, but now in Christ we are made one. It is Christ who has given his church the Holy Spirit, and it is the church that will judge, that will judge with fire. And now the fire and the pro- is in the process of sanctification, the burning away of our perfections, all our brokenness, and all our sin. I once heard it said that we can either serve the Christ who comes riding humbly into Jerusalem on the donkey, or we can be judged by the Christ who comes to conquer on the last day, riding victorious upon the white horse. Let us therefore serve the humble Christ who makes us humble through the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist prepares the way for the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry. He was God's tool in softening the soil and tilling it for the seeds that Christ would sow and grow. We're reminded through his hard words that as we look forward to celebrating the incarnation next Wednesday, that our hearts are constantly being tilled by the Holy Spirit and being watered and pruned until we produce fruit of that same Spirit. That in this, we are called to prepare for Christ's second coming. It is Christ's second coming that gives us such a great hope in the days of turmoil. We may not understand the evil that befalls us, but to quote the poet singer, and in the end, there is oceans and oceans and love and love again. And we will see how the tears that have fallen were caught in the palms of the giver of life and the lover of all. And we will look back on these tears as old tales. In the face of our pain and sorrow, in the days of our sin and heartache, in the face of the darkness that this world can bear, let us bear the light of Christ with joy and cling tightly to him, knowing that the greater joy will come at that last great day. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.